This program was first broadcast on Canterbury's access media station, Plains FM, and was made with the assistance of New Zealand On Air. It's time for bookends. Kia ora, welcome to Bookends with Morin Rout and Ruth Todd. Morin talks with uh, Richard Shaw with his memoir, The Forgotten Coast, and I talk with a very excellent crime writer. On the beach this evening, as the sun sank and the darkness slowly began to creep in, changing the ocean from azure blue to inky black, there were two figures. One sat on the rocks, the cliff looming above her, and the other stood on the beach, shovel in hand, ready to dig. The shovel, at first, was like a spoon through a pile of sugar, but then he reached wetter sand, and the pile to his left began to grow. She sat, the jagged rock digging into the back of her thighs. He had done this before, to scare her, to show her who was boss. A warning. The first couple of times she had tried to escape by climbing up the ladder, but had hit her so hard she had blacked out for a second and spent the rest of the time lying on the beach watching him dig. It was easier now to watch, play the timid wife, because the alternative was so much worse. It took him almost half an hour to dig. He was putting in a lot more effort than usual, at one point hopping into the gaping hole to continue digging. The top of his head could be seen as he flung out wet sand that landed with a slap on the growing pile. He climbed out and walked over to her. Her stomach slipped and she remembered a time when a glance from him caused her stomach to flip in an entirely different way. Nikki Crutchley lives in Cambridge, New Zealand, with her family, and was at Waikato uh, University when she majored in sociology. And after university, she worked as a librarian in New Zealand and overseas for seven years, and now works as a freelance proofreader and copy editor, and writes New Zealand-set crime novels and psychological thrillers. Nikki has been writing on and off her whole life before she turned to crime writing had success in flash fiction and that has been published in many anthologies. Her three crime novels have all been a finalist or long-listed in the Marsh Book Awards and she's with me now. Welcome to the programme, Nikki. Hi, Ruth. Thank you for having me. Well, I was really impressed with this novel um, about Luca, uh, Luca, which means uh, to the sea. And uh, it's just, um, I mean, it's been the only home that 18-year-old Anna has ever known. She's been the only person born there. And mm-hmm. I just got the atmosphere straight away. And in that reading, too, and it's the beautiful wild pine plantation and the Pacific Ocean, and her grandfather builds furniture, her aunt runs an artist's retreat, and her uncle tends the land. It's kind of a paradise, but it's a very private one, um, safe from the outside world. Where did you get the inspiration? Um, I guess I was... I was thinking about probably my love of the sea and for me how it's my happy place and, and there's a, a lot of people I know who, who feel the same way. And I was also kind of thinking about uh, people's, um, what they think of as home to them. And they sound like quite nice ideas, but I write psychological thrillers. So um, I kind of turned that on its head and turned it into, um, as you explained to Luca, it, it, it could be a paradise. 
and actually when my husband was reading the book he said um, he wouldn't mind living there um, without the people maybe um, but yeah that, that was my beginning inspiration and the first the first characters that popped up were, were Hurley the, the grandfather and Anna the, the 18 year old but that was my that was my main inspiration just that love of the ocean but obviously turning it on its head to turn it into a, a psychological thriller Yes, I found that really clever because I, I would want to go there too um, without the people. But um, I liked the way you changed the chapters. You know, we started 23 or 24 years mm. ago and then we come up to the present when Anna narrates and then we go back. And I like books mm. like that that kind of fill in the background for me with the other characters yeah. because a lot has happened. Um, mm. And, I, you know, I gradually realise that this is not a paradise to live in, with, <laughs> especially with Grandfather, but um, Hurley. But um, did you write those separately or did you just link them in as you went? Because they um, sort of go so smoothly. And I thought, yeah. how would you have done that? It was a nightmare, <laughs> um, but it, it did, I feel it did need to be written like that, and, and it was probably more to do with the pacing of, of the book. I wanted, obviously, I wanted people not to be able to put it down, but I thought going back and forth like that, there was there was uh, like some very major scenes happening in the past, but also some quite major scenes happening uh, in the present. Uh, and I think um, pacing-wise, making people keep turning the pages, I thought that was the best way to tell the story. Um, but I, it was a bit higgledy-piggledy, actually, the way the way I wrote it. I was often writing uh, the present scenes with Anna, and an idea would pop into my head for Anahita's um, scenes. Um, Anahita is Anna's mother, who, who tell whose uh, point of view we are in for the past scenes. And I'd often jump ahead and write a few past scenes of Anahita's, and then I'd come back for Anna. And it was a little bit of a jigsaw puzzle, and kind of just doing the reveals at the right time, making sure the reader didn't get them too soon or, or too late. Um, yeah, I found that. It was difficult, but I think I pulled it off in the end. You certainly did. Help, you certainly did. Um, <laughs> yeah. I, I was impressed with that because as I sort of went through it a second time, I thought, gosh, mm. you've just got it right. I'm not knowing too much about... Yeah, you know, oh, good. I'm glad, I'm glad yes. I pulled it off. <laughs> yes, you did. You did. Um, I also... Um, was um, impressed with the characters, all the characters, because um, mm. there was quite a mix, wasn't there? I mean, yeah. and and um, Anna, Anna, um, Anna was eighteen in the present, mm. and um, mm. then Anahita was um, when she had always loved her grandfather so much, hadn't she? Mm. I mean, her father. Yes. Who was yes. Hurley's father? I mean, Hurley's daughter, Anahita. Mm. Yes. And it does um, get a little bit complicated. Yes, <laughs> but uh, you know, they, he had had a bad boating accident, and um, that's about all I'm going to tell him about the plot because yeah, um, you can't yeah. reveal plots in crime writing. Yeah. Um, but it was it was full of secrets and lies, um, and protect the family at all costs, wasn't it? It was. It yeah. was like a cult almost, a small cult that they, he didn't want to, yes. anybody else to come visit. He didn't want to, he was suspicious of everybody. Yeah. And I wondered... And it's funny, it's, sorry, it's funny no. you say that because the very, very start of the idea, I kind of had the idea of a cult. 
um, like a small community living yes. together. But um, that, it's kind of been done, I guess. Um, and um, there are quite a few books about cults and things like that. So I, um, yeah, I just made made it even smaller and turned it into a, into a family. Well, yes, well that's right because you know he was he wouldn't have seen the others in a cult necessarily, mm. and certainly no. not. Um, Asheran, um, mm. who was married to Hunt, um, to Hurley. To Hurley, yes, yeah. I, um, so, and um, she had an uncle there, um, Dylan, who had always um, been attached to his mother rather than to Hurley, mm. uh, his mm. father. And he was running the place as a farm, wasn't he? And, uh, well, he was an outside person and, um, and Marina lived with him. So mm. those, those two characters, and I took quite a while. I'm a bit of a slow sometimes, a bit slow at <laughs> catching up and things, and then suddenly I knew who Marina was. Yes, <laughs> so there's yes. all those little uh, touches that are so special yeah. in crime novels, and I hate yeah. getting sort of too much background at once, but you gradually pulled it in. So it's a great success. And um, But there were some pretty nasty things happening, and I sort yeah. of I didn't make any excuses for Hurley's actions but I just mm. um, found, and especially in that reading, that was very intense, and very tense <laughs> reading, which people will find more about But when they read the book, but it was just um, I don't know, he was quite cruel in many ways, and yet I kept making a slight excuse for him because of a boat accident. I thought, was he yeah, as I... bad as this before he had that brain injury? Or did that? Yeah, I think um, um, so. Hurley is, is the baddie, if you'd like to call him that, uh, the antagonist in the book. I was just very mindful of. Um, I don't really like purely evil characters. No, um, no. I guess Hurley, Hurley would be close to it. Uh, but I just wanted to make sure I did give um, a small bit of background to where he had come from, and he wasn't just this kind of cartoonish. Um, Bad no, no, no. But um, you're you're right. When so he had he has this uh, terrible boating accident, um, kind of in in the past chapters, um, and he suffers a traumatic brain injury. And um, I, I did a, I have a friend who's a um, neuropsychologist, so I got to um, pick her brain a little bit. And I kind of assumed when someone suffers a traumatic brain injury, um, they can go about a, a personality change. Um, and she kind of pulled me back on that and said, people can have a personality change, but it's normally connected to who they were before. So if so, Hurley's quite a controlling, violent, powerful man. And I just wanted to make it clear that in his, say, past life, before the accident, um, he was controlling. Him and his wife weren't getting on that well. Um, and I just, the accident probably just highlighted, um, yeah, yes. those personality traits more, yeah. Because when they bought um, uh, Ilua, Iluya, Iluka, yeah. uh, she yeah. didn't really want to go there. She preferred no, she to live in town where he had yeah. worked. And uh, he, yeah. was, he was obsessed by the sea, wasn't he? The yeah, sea absolutely. was everything. And, yeah, it, it almost um, when I was talking about my love for the sea, I just wanted to um, ramp it up a notch, I guess. And it was more to do with it becomes an obsession and mm. almost like a religion, a religion to them, um, the way he worships the sea. Yeah. You also entwined all the relationships between the family. 
or amongst mm. the family because there were several members of the character and um, in the family, several characters. So mm. I, I just think it's spot on. <laughs> so congratulations. And I <laughs> think you, you must be the next person to go pretty close, if not winning the next um, Naya Marsh with this one, because oh, I read a lot of crime and I really love this one. <laughs> so oh, thank you, you Nikki, for writing this. Thank it's, you. Um, to the Sea by Nikki Crutchley, and it's an enthralling thriller. It's as beautiful and deadly as an ocean storm, Rose Carlyle quoted a quote from her. So um, it's published by HarperCollins, and mm. good luck with your crime writing. I'm looking forward to the next one. <laughs> oh, good. Thanks so much, Ruth. You're listening to Bookends on Plains FM 96.9. The Forgotten Coast was one of, if not the, most absorbing, satisfying and thought-provoking books that I read over the holidays. So it's a great pleasure to talk to its author, Richard Shaw. Richard is a professor of politics at Massey University and I really like the fact that in the bio he's written that this is the first book he's written that doesn't include terms such as ministerial advisor, public service bargain and core executive studies. Welcome to the program, Richard. Thank you, Maureen. Appreciate you having me on. Well, I thought I'd start immediately by asking you to define your own book because... Memoir doesn't even begin to cover it, and um, it's part of a, a a growing body of books, I think, that we really need here in New Zealand because you look at what it means to become a Pākehā, not be a Pākehā, and all of us need to take stock of our place here in Aotearoa, yeah. New Zealand. That's um, well. That's such a hard question, Moran. But I, I think you're right. I'm 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 still not really sure what the book is. Sometimes it feels to me like it's um it's a bit of a muff of a series of things. I, I've called it a memoir because it sort of tracks back through um, my father's death, uh, a relationship that I never had with my my great uncle, who I have been fascinated by for many years, a Roman Catholic priest and a really brilliant man, studied at Rome. Um, I didn't start out intending to write the sort of book that it eventually became, but partway through, I, I stumbled across some some things um, about my great grandfather, a man called Andrew Gilhealy, who who turns out to have a, a colourful history uh, and not one that was ever talked about in my family. Um, so I think at that point, the book became it became clear to me that I couldn't avoid that particular history, and, and perhaps we'll talk about that a little further on. So it became a, a combination of a, of a of a memoir, but also some personal reflections on what it means for me. It's a very personal book. I don't presume to speak for anybody else. What it means to be um, a Pago person in this country, and in particular from a from a part of the country where my family established themselves on on the coast in Taranaki, which is very unquiet, where there's some really disturbing history which continues to echo down through the present and will continue to echo into the future. So the, the book is an attempt to get my head around what it means for me as a middle-aged bloke heading towards the end of a career uh, to, to discover elements of my family's history which I was not aware of and which really need to be made sense of. 
I think it is the fact that you've um, approached it as, uh, you know, so personally that makes it so um, powerful because you're not preaching to us. You're not, you know, talking about redemption or giving us advice on how to go about um, a similar um, research that we may or may not want to do. But it's, it's the personal that's so powerful and political in a sense. It's certainly very political, and I wasn't political. It was. Um, I'm. I'm grateful you said that because I, I. I really don't want to, and didn't want to jump on any kind of uh, tub and start thumping it. Um, I don't. Uh, it's not my place to talk to or for or on behalf of any anybody else. There are there are lots of different Pagia histories in this country. I'm conscious too that the word is a contested one. It's one that I like and am, and am comfortable with because it describes perfectly for me who who I'm in, in the process of becoming. But part of the the reason why I use the word becoming Pagia or the phrase in the book is because I think to become that kind of person, I need to get my head around the history. Um, in Taranaki, out of which my family emerged, and, and that history involved um, two things, which are, are deeply troubling and, and problematic for me. And one of them is that my great grandfather was part of the armed constabulary who invaded Parihaka in the morning of the fifth of November in 1881. So he's there; he's somewhere there in the pictures. I can't I can't find him in the pictures, but he's there. I know that he's there. And the second thing is that he went away. In fact, he went down to Waipunami, down to your part of the world. He was part of the permanent militia um, at Port Chalmers for four years in the, in the artillery. And then he came back to Taranaki and he farmed. He eventually wound up farming three pieces of land, all of which are on the 1.2 million acres of land that was confiscated by the Crown in 1865. And it all remains confiscated, and much of it has, has been passed into private ownership. Um, two of those farms were privately owned. One was on... West Coast leasehold land, which is a whole kind of challenging story. So my family, uh, as, as do many families from that part of the of the country, um, tell a settler story, and they and it's a story of hard work uh, and breaking in the land and, and developing families and communities and so on. To, and and most most of that is true, and it's uh, it's it's something that I take pride in. But um, that history always starts with the purchase of the family farms. It never goes back before then. Uh, and what I've uncovered in the context of my own family is that the pre-settlement story is a very unsettled one. Um, we are able to tell that settlement story in our part of Taranaki only because the people whose land we farmed on were dispossessed. And I think, to come back to your original point around what it might mean for me to be in the process of becoming Pākehā, it's not tenable any longer to tell just the cool stuff, just the settler story I now need to tell the unsettled story as well. I'm conscious that that's not the case for very many people in this country, but it is for me. Yeah, and I think it is for me as well. I grew up further north on the coast, just north of Raglan, and no. that on a farm. No. Um, and yeah. I think that land, I'm sure that land was confiscated illegally from the local Māori. So that's another that's another site. But, you know, you've got to refle- write your book, Moran. Yes. <laughs> well, I, I don't think I have your skills, but I certainly need to uh, and want to find out more. But moving on, so he's a very important part of the story. But mm. how you weave in your, uh, uh, it's your uncle, isn't it? Um, yes. The yeah, priest. Yeah. Um, yeah. How you weave his story in is really interesting. And what a fascinating person he was. 
Oh, yeah, he was, he was. Thank you. I'm pleased that that works as well, because I wasn't sure um, quite how well I succeeded in doing that. He's, he's, he has intrigued me for many, many years. He's intrigued me for much longer than my great-grandfather intrigued me. There were no stories about Andrew Gilherby, the man who was in the armed constabulary at all, and I can understand why that is the case now. But there were plenty of stories about Dick Gilherby, his youngest son, who was a really prodigious um, scholar. He went to, as, as did lots of young boys at that stage, they, they got on a boat in New Plymouth and they either went north to Sacred Heart College in Auckland or they came south to St Pat's in Wellington. Um, Dick went to Sacred Heart. Uh, where he was a, a boxer and a thespian and a really bright guy, and he he was he had wanted to become a priest, a Roman Catholic priest, a secular priest, in other words, a priest who works in a parish rather than joins an order. Um, for as far as I can tell, for his entire life, and, and the church lined him up, I think, from a long way out for a, essentially for a political career and sent him to Rome. When he was nineteen, where he completed three degrees, the equivalence of a bachelor's. Degree, a degree, yeah, yeah, and a doctor of divinity in two years. It's ridiculous. It should have taken him five, but he sort of barreled through these academic programs. And the letters from Rome uh, are fascinating, and, and, and there's lots of stuff in the book about that. You know, the, the experience of studying at the Lateran University uh, and living in the Royal uh, in the uh, in the Pontifical Irish College. It's just intriguing for me to read about. Um, but the tragedy for Dick, at least as I see it, I'm not sure that Dick would agree, is that while he was in Rome, he contracted TB um, and he was sent home very, very shortly after he secured his doctorate. He was supposed to head off to, for further postgraduate study either in England or in the, or in the United States of America. It's not quite clear. Yeah, he got crook. So they packed him off home and he spent the rest of his life dying. It took him 20 years to die. So he, had, he, he was a diminished person, um, in some respects, at the end of it. So there is this thing about Dick. Dick is complicated um, because he has a, he is clearly a, a brilliant man with a beautiful voice and he was a good boxer, but he died a long, slow, lingering death uh, and, and he was dead by the age of 44. So for me, particularly in my own background, um, as somebody who's worked in universities for a lot of their life, I'm, I'm, I'm fascinated by his scholarly achievements. But I never found his thesis. One of the things that, that still bothers me is there is a doctorate sitting out there somewhere in the world I don't know where it is. I've done everything I can to track it down, including spending um, a couple of weeks in Rome, uh, wandering around various archives and libraries and so on. But there is a doctorate out there written by this man on the irredeemable evil of the lie. Mm. Uh, and, in the, and in the context of a book, which is about silence, elements of one's family history, I, I find that fascinating. But I don't know where that thesis is, and I doubt that I'll ever read it. Well, who knows? Your book is out in the world. You just don't know what serendipities await, but yeah. yes, what a what a, a pertinent um, topic for a thesis in terms mm. of what you look for in this book. Um, mm. And as you say, he he wouldn't necessarily have have seen his life as a as as a blighted one. No, I don't think so at all. Um, you know, there are the, the book is full of lots of things that I knew nothing about. Um, and the book is an attempt to to learn more for for myself and to and to offer what little I might have learned to other people as well. But it's it's clear from the historical record that my great grandfather's involvement both in the invasion and the subsequent occupation of Pariyaka and then the return to farm on land, which we say has been confiscated, but in fact it's been stolen from people. I think we should call it what it is. Mm. Um, 
there is just silence on that, and the silence falls quickly. So, so by the end of the of the 19th century, Parihaka has has dropped into the realm of the unspoken and the unremembered and the silent amongst my people anyway, certainly not for the people of Parihaka themselves, I would not have thought. So there is the, that, that section of the book that talks about Dixie as its Sacred Heart and Rome um, and then back here quietly dying. Uh, there's no mention of Māori at all. There's no mention of, of the land. There's no mention of, of, of anything much. Um, so so that, that troubled history is clearly not one which was experienced by Dicker's trouble because it's never referred. It's never referred to. Or, or look, perhaps it was sublimated. I, I really don't know. I wouldn't want to attribute that to him. Um, but there is silence, and so Dick grew up in a very different world. You know, in, in, in a world of he, he grew up in an academic world, uh, in a world surrounded by churchmen. Um, he had he clearly that were a tight group of men. Uh, his his academic and political career was in the church. Um, he didn't live on the coast again. He left when he was 10 to go to Sagrada. He died in New Plymouth, but he never returned to live on the coast, although he bounced in and out um, singing at masses hmm. with his sister, who was a great pianist. Um, but the circumstances in which his family came into the land on which he and my mother were born uh, do not feature in Dick's story at all. So just finally, um, your father, and that's a very hmm. tender story. Why did you include him? Um, the book begins with my dad's death uh, in the ICU up at Waikato Hospital on Christmas Eve in 2012. He went, he went up there for about uh, routine and it's straightforward and it's standard, but in dad's case, it got very complicated very quickly and he died there. Um, and I had... I think been sort of skirting around the margins of um, things about my family's history at the time that Dad died, and uh, his death had several effects upon me. Um, and one of them was to galvanise me. It was sort of a kick in the ass, really. And I wanted to. In fact, I started the book by by needing to write about Dad and my relationship with Dad. It's what I do in my day job. I write things out. It's um, it's a, a thing that I do when I don't understand stuff or, or, or feel grumpy or can't make sense of things or whatever the case may be. So I started by writing about um, my relationship with Dad. My, my dad grew up in an orphanage in Marston, even though he wasn't, uh, formally speaking, an orphan. Um, and he married into my mum. My dad was a very quiet man, uh, married a very gregarious woman from a big coastal Catholic family. Um, I, I think that was challenging him at all sorts of different levels, but when my father died, uh, one of the things that I regretted was that I, there were many things that I had not said to him. There were many conversations that I wished I had had with him that I, that I hadn't had. And, and the book, the part of the book that deals with dad is an attempt to have those conversations. And one of the things that um, it achieved for me was getting some clarity and, and better understanding of the kind of man that he was, kind of father that he was. So I, um, the, the stuff about the, the, the book that is most um, publicly pertinent, I think, is the stuff around Parihaka land confiscation, um, my great-grandfather and, and what people like me who grew up on land that was taken from other, pe from other people, what we do with that information. But for me, the emotional heart of the book is the bit that deals with Dad and, and my relationship with him. So it's a, it's a homage to my father as well. 
Well, I hope this book is widely read, Richard, and thank you for writing it because it certainly stirred a lot up for me and um, and there are things that I probably need to follow up. So well done and thank you. Thank you very much, Maren. I appreciate the fact that you read the book and said such generous things about it and, and gave me the chance to shoot the breeze about it today. Thanks. Good. The book is called The Forgotten Coast. It's by Richard Shaw and it's published by Massey University Press. And join us, Maureen Rout and Ruth Todd, next Tuesday on Bookends on Plains FM 96.9.